With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. Seku Smith in San Antonio. My main man, John Schumann, is in New Jersey. And we will be joined by our colleague, Sean Powell, at some point here. He's in L.A. for the Golden State Warriors, L.A. Clippers Pivotal game three tonight. Shu, you got your eyeballs on Philly and Brooklyn. Game twos in the books all around the first round of the playoffs. You're going to be in Brooklyn tonight, Shu. What can the Nets get done in that series on their home floor? They have to get stopped. They have to find a way to get stops. I wrote about it today that, you know, this has been the most efficient offensive series in the playoffs so far. And on the Philly end of the floor, it's a lot about offensive rebounding. Sixers lead postseason so far in offensive rebounding percentage, second chance points. They're just sort of killing the nets on the glass. Obviously, they have a huge size advantage with Embiid and Boban. The center position, obviously, but also, you know, at with Ben Simmons. And so they're going to get offensive rebounds and that's just have to um, control the glass as much as possible. It's a matter of, you know, which, which of these teams can do a better job of getting stops. Yeah, I'll be at... Uh... And Nugget Spurs tonight, as I mentioned, that series is tied 1-1 shoe. Jamal Murray had to help Denver rally to win game two and kind of save themselves. If they go down 0-2 and have to come here to play a game three, that could have been fatal for uh, Mike Malone's team. As I mentioned later in the show, we'll talk to uh, our main man, Sean Powell, the West Coast Bureau Chief for NBA.com. He's at a game three for the Warriors and Clippers in a series that is much more intriguing than I imagined it would be three games in. We'll talk about the Clippers' epic game to comeback, DeMarcus Cousins' playoffs ending before it even got started, and, and what that means for the Warriors moving forward. But before we do that, three favorites open 2-0 leads on Wednesday night shoe. The Celtics squeaked out a game two win over the Pacers. Kyrie went bananas, 37-7-6. Jason Tatum with 26. The Pacers, they were... I don't want to say in control, but certainly led for most of the game late into the fourth. I watched them kind of come apart at the end before my game started in Houston last night where the where the Rockets just smashed the Jazz for the second straight game. Have the Pacers squandered any opportunity they had to maybe make a dent in that series? I feel like Boston is going to get stronger and stronger as that thing goes on. And, and the Pacers look to me like a team that's going to struggle to find a way to really make a mark in that series. They just don't have a closer or go-to person 
that you can give that ball to when you need to. Yeah, I mean, they were scoring fine uh, first half, even through the third quarter. I mean, you mentioned the late game stuff, but it was really early in the fourth when they lost that game. They were up 12 early in the fourth, and then they went almost eight minutes without scoring a point. Turned into a 16-0 Boston run. They regained the lead, but then went 0-3 for with two turnovers in the final two minutes. Yeah, I mean, the as I said, the Brooklyn... Philadelphia series has been the most efficient series so far. Obviously, the Boston-Indiana has been the least efficient. The Celtics have scored less than a point per possession uh, over the two games and are up 2-0. So that tells you about which end of the floor is is the bigger issue for the Pacers. You would think Wesley Matthews would have, would be the, the, the vet that would settle them down, but I thought the shot that he took late in that game on uh, – Wednesday was just awful like uh, maybe he was going for a two for one but there was still seven seconds left when he shot that sort of pull up contested long three from the right wing that banked off and hit off the glass and and bounced out you know I know you're going for a two for one but you still gotta you know getting a good shot is more important than getting an an additional shot um, especially when you're really struggling offensively in the first place so we've talked about it before that you know with Boston with one opponent in front of them they should be able to be a better and more consistent defensive team, be able to execute their game plan pretty well defensively. And I think they have, despite the absence of Marcus Smart. So it's been a struggle. You know, I wouldn't count Indiana out of anything at this point, but um, obviously uh, their offense can dry up pretty quickly. But in you often, I mean, after a couple games in a series, once you change venues, that's an opportunity to kind of change the tide a little bit, but, you you really start to notice who and what a team is, you know, after a couple games. Um, Utah was stunning to me how inept they were in trying to deal with, with the Rockets. This is a Utah team that was very competitive, you know, last year against this same Rockets team. Obviously, both both groups have slightly different personnel, but core groups are, are basically the same, and they, they look lost. I mean, Houston's good, and they're better, um, and playing with a different kind of edge, but to blow the Jazz out the way they have in those first two games is kind of shocking. It, it reminds me of what the Bucks are doing to the Pistons. I mean, just laying waste to it. And Blake Griffin being sidelined with that knee certainly doesn't give the Pistons a fighting chance to compete in that series. The 2-0 lead, I think, will only be worse if they go home at, at Little Caesars Arena and get their doors blown off. It, it'll be an inevitability in that series to me. I think Milwaukee is a much superior team obviously it's a one eight matchup you know Giannis dominated again I don't know I don't know what Don Maker said to him I don't know if they had if this is you know him schooling little brother whatever it is but he's he's working the Pistons can can the Bucks really gauge anything off of this Pistons series you know based on the way they're they're just wiping the floor with this team it's a good question I think the key for them I guess is to just make sure that they execute in the half court they lead the postseason so far with Transition possessions, 27.5 per game, which is a ton. You know, Detroit, if, if it has to, has any prayer, has to just, you know, get back and transition and keep Milwaukee from scoring in transition and hope that you, that you can force them to take tougher shots in the half court. And if they're not slowing them down, then that's not, not very good. I think the other thing that's great for Milwaukee is 
Andre Drummond only has six offensive rebounds through two games. Like if you're if you're limiting him to just three offensive boards per game, you're doing a fantastic job on the glass. And you know Milwaukee was the second best defensive rebounding team in the regular season, the most improved from last year. That's a, a, a key. It's sort of an improvement that they made under under Budenholzer that does just sort of gun, doesn't goes under the radar. You know nobody talks about defensive rebounding that much, but that's been a huge key in their improvement defensively. And you know their starting lineup even with Brogdon out has been just dominant. Milwaukee starters, when they played together, have outscored Detroit 75 to 36. And that's a common theme in these East series. The Toronto starters, 100 to 64, they've outscored Orlando in 36 minutes. And the Philadelphia starters have outscored the Nets 63 to 32 um, in their 19 minutes on the floor together. I think the theme in those two series is game one upsets, but then game two, oh yeah, the Raptors are much more talented than the than the Magic, and the Sixers are much more talented than the Nets. And you know when that talent plays together and plays well, those two teams can dominate. And with the Bucks and Pistons, obviously, you know it's the same story. They've just been able to do it for both games. Yeah, obviously, all these series are going to take some some natural twists and turns. Shoe the Raptors, you know, bounce back one game two against the Magic on Tuesday to even that series at one and one. Kyle Lowry, thank goodness, showed up. You know, from a zero point game in the opener to 22 and seven assists in game two much needed for for Kyle Lowry's psyche as well as the psyche of the the city of Toronto and their rabid and robust fan base I'm sure they had to have a a bounce back performance from him to feel like they weren't falling down the playoff rabbit hole again who needs to take the the lead for Orlando you know if they're going to try and continue to make that an interesting series Vucevic scored just six points and and Fournier had just 10 in, in game two. Neither one of them shot it very well. Um, is there somebody else on that roster that could take the lead? I think Augustine is still a key to them, just him playing pick and roll and 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 making good decisions out of the pick and roll. Um, they're going to keep moving, but Vucevic obviously has to be better. He's got to be able to make uh, the Toronto centers pay for, say, hanging out in the paint. He's got to hit shots from the outside. He's got to do a little bit of work inside. You know, they need more from him. Obviously, he's a, he's their all star. I've said this before. Like Orlando goes as Terrence Ross goes. When he has a positive plus minus, they almost always win. When he has a negative plus minus, they almost always lose. Um, that has held true so far uh, so far in this series. But still, they need their starting lineup to do more than just sort of hold water. Like I, I told you, the score of when the Toronto starting lineup has been on the floor. So that obviously means that the Orlando starting lineup has been getting killed. And that's, um, you know, they just can't do that because they just don't have the depth beyond, beyond Terrence Ross to, uh, to handle Toronto. I mean, it, I mean, let's just face it. Toronto is really freaking talented. You know, we talk about the Sixers starting lineup, but if you look at Toronto, it's two all-stars in Lowry and Leonard. Danny Green is one of the best shooters in the league and also one of the best perimeter defenders in the league. Pascal Siakam is probably an all-star next year. Wow, you think you think yes, he, yes. He, he rises yes. to that yeah, level? He's, wow. he's incredibly versatile and an impact player on both ends of the floor. I mean, a guy who can, mm-hmm. who can handle the ball, um, finish well at the rim, um, has shot corner threes pretty well, and then he's a, a versatile and lengthy defender who can – who can uh, disrupt you on that end of the floor. So, yeah, if Leonard's the best player in the series, I would say that Siakam is maybe better than anybody on the Magic. Yeah. Really? So okay. they might – Toronto might have the three best players in the series. Wait a minute. <laughs> Who's the third? Well, Kyle Lowry is an all-star. Um, and – So is Jamal McGlure. <laughs> so <laughs> – 
<laughs> I mean, easy I'll, now. I'll say easy. Kyle Lowry, when playing at his best, is one of the best players okay. in the Eastern Conference. I, I'll give you, I'll give you Kyle Lowry. I'm sorry, I apologize. You're right. He's an All Star. Uh, so is Nick Vucevic. So he might have something to say. Or at least his fan club might have something to say with your rankings in that series. Um, I know who I'm ranking number one in the Thunder Trailblazer series. I love what Damian Lillard and C.J. McCollum are doing. You talk about two guys stepping up, shoe and refusing to let circumstance dictate what's going on with them. McCollum had 33. Dame had 29. Outplayed Russell Westbrook and, and Paul George, who's still clearly dealing with that shoulder. What can they possibly do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually be in Oklahoma City for their games three and four. Um, game three is Friday night at 9.30 Eastern ESPN. What what can the Thunder do? I mean, this is a crossroad series for them in terms of this group they have. If they can't do any better than a first-round exit, is it time to, to take a look at maybe retooling that roster? Well, I mean, the answer to what can they do is to make a shot. Um, they are <laughs> 10 for 61 from three-point range, which is 16%. Um, that's not very good. There are seven for forty-four, seven for forty-four on catch and shoot threes. So yeah, I mean, if things continue like this, then yeah, they obviously need to add shooting, shooting around these two guys, um, like deadly shooting, like like really good shooters. You know, um, Terrence Ferguson has improved in that regard. Jeremy Grant has improved in that regard this year, but improved doesn't mean great. And, I mean, can they afford to? Can they afford to continue to? watch some of those guys improve organically or does this require they need shoot they need they need guys overall, who, can yeah. get, who are who are real threats from three point range that can give their ball handlers more space that could punish you for um putting too much attention uh, on Westbrook or Paul George so yeah i think that's that's what they need and you know i mean maybe those guys shoot better in Oklahoma City but still you know the the symptoms of a bad shooting team have been there all year long, really. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of a fatal flaw of that roster that they don't shoot it better as a group. I, that's the one thing about these playoffs that bothers me, Shu, and it always has. It's just how huge a difference guys, certain guys play at home compared to on the road. And I know it's a thing. I know there's data to back it up, and nobody has a real theory, concrete theory as to why. Some guys are so much better at home than they're on the road. Oh, you're sleeping in your own bed or you're comfortable, you know. Why, why, can't, why can't you go on the road and play better, some of these teams? Why? I mean, it does not make sense to me that, that nobody's ever solved this thing. It's not everybody. I mean, no, saw, I'm just saying. Brooklyn, with all the inexperience that they had, looked completely, you know, yeah. look, not – what's the word I'm looking for? They didn't look overwhelmed at all from no, – from, They from, weren't attacking from, we saw Orlando, you know, the same, you know, they don't, you know, that's a team that hadn't been in the playoffs in a long time, but they looked comfortable in game one. That's a great question. You know, I, I you know, it's, it's 94 feet, um, yeah. baskets, 10 feet high, the three point lights, 23 feet, you know, it like, it's the same, but uh, it's different. You know, that's, it's just the way it is. I mean, maybe it's just human nature. Maybe it's just a part of the human condition, you know, that, <laughs> But I, I just don't understand. You, we found ways to combat everything else, the training, the rest, prepper, you know, all this stuff, and nobody can solve this. Nobody can figure out 
why you can't get a guy to make more shots or to play better in a road game than he does in a home game in the playoffs. It's just, I mean, it could be, it could be, you could look at the other end of the, the, the other side of it in that uh, a home crowd energizes the home team more. And then they're a little bit more active, a little bit more energetic. But then people never want to talk about that. Like, Oh, you know, you know, you know, they, they, there's this like eye roll about saying that the crowd influenced it, you know, no, I'm just saying, like, if if you have a little bit more energy, you're, you're obviously going to be a little bit more disrupt, disruptive defensively, and that can cause the other team to shoot worse. You know, I mean, it's yeah. if you're in the passing lanes a little bit more, if you're contesting shots a little bit better, you know, that's if you're if you're if the visiting team's shots aren't as uh, open or in rhythm as they are at home, you know, then they're gonna they're not gonna shoot as well. Well, as somebody who watched a road team pull off something epic. The other night is uh, with us now. Sean Powell, our West Coast Bureau Chief from NBA.com, was in the building to watch the Clippers rally from 31 down. Peasy, thanks for joining us, man. What in the world happened at Oracle the other night? What was that? I'm still trying to figure it out, but uh, two days later. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, the, uh, the night began on a bad note for the Warriors when DeMarcus Cousins went down. Uh, as soon as he fell down, everybody in the building knew it wasn't good. Um, I mean, he fell down right in front of the bench. Every The coaches jumped up. All the players on the bench jumped up because uh, they're conditioned to know when a, a, a player falls and it's just a fall or he falls and there's an issue. So, uh, But then the Warriors built the lead, and I think not only did the players pretty much tune out the Clippers at that point. So did the crowd. The crowd wasn't even in the game. You know, when you build, when, when you're leaving by 31 points in the second half, uh, people are thinking about the, the Bay Bridge traffic and whether or not uh, they should uh, start beating it. And uh, so the atmosphere, atmosphere in the building was really flat. And then all of a sudden, Clippers came, you know, they rallied. But I don't think anybody really had a sense of what was happening at that point. I think the fans and probably in the media are conditioned to see in the NBA, if you've been watched the NBA game, you know, over the years, you know that teams always come back. We see that all the time. They go on runs. But this was a run. You know, this was an Olympic run. This was a marathon run. And the Clippers just kept pounding. And I think the war, they didn't get the Warriors' attention until all of a sudden the Warriors said, hey, it's a 10-point game. And then, hey, it's a six-point game. And I think at that right. point – and especially after Kevin Durant fouled out, uh, the Warriors were just caught off guard. They knew they were in a dogfight that they didn't expect, and suddenly they're scrambling. And suddenly Clay Thompson can't hit a shot, mm-hmm. and Steph Curry can't hit a shot, and and Kevin Durant is you know on the bench. And at that point, you know it was all Clippers. I wrote a couple of notes uh, for this series. First one is that the Warriors have 43 turnovers in two games uh, and 24 of the 43 have been live balls. This has been a sort of an Achilles heel for them, you know, for five years now. And it seems like they had done a better job of taking care of the ball uh, this season. But, you know, that 43 is a huge number for two games. And what have they said about that, Sean? Like, is that issue number one for them uh, going into game three? Absolutely. Uh, That's something that Steve Kerr said uh, after game one when they won the game. Uh, He sort of cautioned that, you know, hey, we have to do a better job of protecting the ball. And, John, this is coming against a Clippers team. It's a good defensive team. But uh, other than Patrick Beverly, you'd be hard-pressed to find 
someone on the team that has a great reputation defensively. Um, and so that leads me to believe, not that I've studied every last Warriors turnover in this series, but I think a lot of these are unforced errors. Uh, you know, I, mental lapses, just not taking care of the ball, just being sloppy with it. Um, you know, it's uncharacteristic of a championship team. Uh, and I think, uh, let's assume, for example, that they win this series and then you, you see that dogfight with Houston coming up. There's no way they can get past the Rockets uh, being this sloppy with the ball. Uh, because then... Yeah, I, I'll say this. The, the Clippers in the regular season ranked 27th in opponent turnover rate. So it's not like they're dealing with the, the Thunder here who you know, who make their bones off of forcing turnovers and, and getting out in transition. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, an alarming number, even just given the opponent. Yeah, and, and as I said, I, I think a lot of their errors are just through lapses of concentration. And, you know, when you look at – look, we've all seen the Warriors over the past, you know, five years during this run, uh, and particularly when they went on that jaunt when they uh, had the um, – established the uh, NBA record for most regular season wins. Uh, this team is so talented that it just takes possessions off sometimes, or they, they just yes. become too much freelancy. Uh, very, um, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I would just say they're just frivolous with the basketball is what they yeah, are. They it, get frivolous. It, with the ball. Exactly. They take themselves for granted. They take leads for granted. Yeah. They assume that their talent is going to bail them out each and every time. And you know what? Pretty much it does. And when you become that conditioned, <laughs> then you run into situations like they have in the last two games. I don't understand what it is Kevin Durant thinks he's accomplishing by allowing Patrick Beverly to engage him in this playground back and forth nonsense like why would you take that bait if you're Kevin Durant from Patrick Beverly or anybody else but certainly from a guy you're a foot taller than who's not in your same universe as a talent Sekou uh, it's just one of the strangest things I've seen this season um you're right you're talking you know Kevin Durant one of the top three best players in the NBA really playing Patrick Beverly's game the one thing about Patrick Beverly is this. He is going to test you. If you respond, then he's going to even bring it more. If you ignore him, then he's going to lay off you a little bit and just, you know, go back to playing defense. But Kevin Durant took the bait. He has engaged in a give and take verbally, physically, and it, it, it's so distracting to the Warriors, it's distracting to him, it's distracting to the game. I know Steve Kerr is just beside himself, beside himself. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the organization right now is walking on eggshells egg around Kevin Durant because, you know, he has mm -hmm. some sort of leverage. You know, they don't want to upset him. You know, he's going to be a free agent. You know, there's only so much we can say. And But by and large, by the way, and there's a bigger issue here, Sekou, it's been a really strange year for Kevin Durant. Uh, he yes. has... Yes. Um, and I don't know if you've dealt with him over the years, several years or whatever, but this is not the Kevin Durant that I saw maybe five years ago. He is distracted. Mm -hmm. He is agitated. 
Uh, he uh, reasoned to everything. Maybe he's always been that way as far as just being too sensitive. But his sensitive meter is just going crazy this year. You know, he takes yeah. everything personally. And I don't know if it's the pressure of trying to win another championship, the pressure of pending free agency. I don't know. And maybe he has something going on in his private life that we don't know. I don't know what it is. But this guy has teetered on the emotional edge all season. And you wonder why he's got great health. His team is winning. He's about to hit the jackpot. What more could you want in life? Why would that send you on the edge? And I think what we've seen here with Patrick Beverly is just pretty much a microcosm of what Kevin Durant has been going through all year. Right. Sean, do you think it, it, it people look at it and say, well, this is Kevin Durant's drama manifesting itself in a way, you know, he, he's been into it with Draymond this year. He's been into it with us, with us being the media. I mean, he's, he's had something going on with, with seemingly everyone possible, you know, calling out uh, one of the Bay area reporters by name, you know, specifically in a post-game press conference and going at him, calling out CJ McCollum, like, you know, even going back to last summer about something that was said after they'd been on, on a podcast together. I mean, is you know, we always talk about reading between the lines and a guy kind of paving his his road out of town or out of a situation. Is this maybe Durant letting the cat out of the bag about what his plans might be in the future? I think even if you pretty much have made your mind up that you're going to leave, why would you why would you even go in this direction emotionally? What's the what's the big deal? This should be a happy time. You should be thrilled because number one. <laughs> You have choices. Number two, if he walks out the door, by the way, if he leaves the Warriors, it's not going to be like he left the, the, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Nobody in the Bay Area right. is going to hold it against him. You know, I can see if he had some angst about leaving because he fears a backlash. It's not going to be a backlash. He could walk out that, that door after three years, win three championships. His jersey's going to be raised in that new building at some point. And when he returns next season in another uniform, he gets a round of applause. Okay, Uh, so I don't understand where this is all coming from. As I said before, maybe it's something we don't know. And, you know, I don't want to go there, but it just seems strange and really beneath a player of his talent, number one. And number two, his track record. As I said before, up until like a couple years ago, we haven't seen the side of Kevin Durant. I I hate reading between the lines. I hate projecting shoe, but but it's hard not to when when we've, I mean, as much scrutiny has been on the Warriors since he joined them. Two, you know, back-to-back finals MVPs, back-to-back championships. And there's, he, there's no relief or joy in his face or in his persona having won like You could try to read into it. I, I, I try to just focus on the basketball. Um, if he's scoring, doing his job, I mean, he has the ability to be maybe the best offensive player and one of the best defensive players in the league when he's uh, at his best. You know, the, the sensitivity, sensitivity towards Beverly and, and all that, you know, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to look past the Clippers. They've done a fantastic job, but like it, I start to now focus or I start to think about Warriors Rockets in the next round. And when Warriors Rockets has gotten into an ISO fest sort of on both ends of the floor, because both teams are, are, are switching screens and it becomes sort of a one-on-one competition, um, Durant can sort of take, take the Warriors out of what they do best. He's the one that can sort of uh, get baited into the, the one-on-one competition with the Rockets and take not the best shots. 
And so that's that's the one thing I, I start to worry about him basketball wise, considering that the Rockets are going to probably the, the Warriors biggest threat going forward. You know, I think they, they should be OK in this series. Credit to the Clippers. The one thing I loved about that comeback the other night was the, the game winning basket, um, how the, the Warriors doubled Lou Williams. He got it to uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander, um, rookie with the ball, could have taken a bad shot but drew the defense and then found Landry Shamit on, on the, uh, on the right side of the floor who was open. Um, and then another rookie just hitting the, you know, the biggest shot of his life, I guess. Yeah. That was my, my favorite thing about that, that game two comeback and, and, and credits to the Clippers for that. I just, uh, I just don't know if they have it to, uh, to beat the Warriors, even if the Warriors aren't at their best. Sean, what, what is the, the vibe in LA about this Clippers team? Uh, are people, I mean, it was one thing to make the playoffs, but now to, to strike in the series the way they have, something that I don't think a lot of people expected at all. What's, what's the feeling about the Clippers and exactly what they're working with? I mean, I've, we saw Steve Ballmer go bananas after the game. He was beside himself. And, and I guess there would be a tendency to get really fired up. You win one game, and then the Warriors, you know, put this thing back out of reach maybe, but – are we feeling even better than we did about the Clippers now after they get this one game, like about their future? Well, I hate to speak for all of Los Angeles, but my gut feeling is that the vibe in mm-hmm. L.A. is about the Clippers. Um, uh, and that's no offense to the Clippers, but, um, you know, mm-hmm. they don't have a superstar who generates buzz. Um, yeah, they won 48 games, and, you know, Doc Rivers does such a tremendous job of blah, blah, blah. But it'll be very interesting about the atmosphere at the Staples Center over the next couple games to see if there are a fair segment of Warriors fans. Uh, because during the regular yeah. season, they did have a fair segment of Warriors fans in the building. I think, if I can venture out on this limb, that I think with the Clippers, you know, yes, they appreciate this team, they like this team and all that, but the attention is fractured. In, in one sense, it's fractured toward the Lakers and, and that dysfunction and what's going on and who are they going to, what are they going to do? And then it's fractured mm-hmm. also in favor of the Clippers with regards to what the Clippers are going to do in free agency this summer. You know, if the Clippers, and I wrote this today on the NBA.com website, if the Clippers have a good summer, mm-hmm. they're going to be a contender next year. If they have a great summer, they will switch places with the Warriors this time next year. And by great summer, that means wow. they steal Kevin Durant and maybe they find a way to also get, you know, a Kawhi Leonard type. Uh, that is not beyond the realm of possibility. We don't know exactly where these guys are going to go. We, you know, we, you know, we hear the buzz and, you know, we're coming up with our gut feelings and all those sort of things. And yes, there will be competition for the A-list free agents. But look, if you're a free agent, uh, why would you quickly scratch the Clippers off your list? They have done nothing, nothing to make you dismiss them. They have a coach that a lot of players like to play for. They've got an owner who has so much money you can't count that high. And they've got <laughs> Jerry West as a consultant. When you walk, if you're a free agent, you walk into the room this summer, okay, there's Doc Rivers, there's Steve Ballmer, there's Jerry West. How are you not going to be impressed by that? How are you not going to be impressed by that meeting? So, and they've got money uh, to spend, and they've got the charms of living in Los Angeles. No, they don't have the following of the, of the Lakers. And yes, when the Clippers were at their height with Lob City, uh, they didn't exactly capture the imagination of Los Angeles. Uh, but still, 
Um, I would say uh, now the Clippers are a curiosity, but we'll see what happens in the next two games, and we'll definitely see what happens this summer. So, I mean, it's a fascinating story watching what the Clippers have done. But you're right, Sean. They've given you a, a lot of reasons to to look at them in free agency. If you're a superstar player, you've got a bench that's already in place. So you got some quality of depth that's already there. you got young talent, uh, a great coach, the richest owner in the league, if I'm not mistaken. L.A. is a back. You, you know, if you took away the Clippers' name and just presented – those facts, why wouldn't that be more attractive or as attractive as the Lakers or any other destination in free agency? You said if you remove the Clippers name, you know, what would you have? And you're right about that. I think this, this team is still stigmatized by, you know, the past and Donald Sterling and things like that to an extent anyway, but this team is light years removed from that brand new owner. Who's pretty much, you know, given the franchise all they want uh, great communicator with everyone. Um, you know where you stand with him. He's got a good front office. He's got the good pieces around. Uh, if you bring in a superstar, superstar already has, you know, a good bench, good supporting cast. If you put this exact situation and rename it the Lakers, or you put this exact situation and rename it the Knicks, uh, I would think a free agent would jump at that chance, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's like it's like the old Pepsi Coke challenge thing. Like just Hide, you know, put something in front of all these these free agent options. And I'm thinking Brooklyn, New York, you know, the Knicks, all these different options. I'm not – and I'm not just saying this for effect, Sean. I'm not so sure the Clippers isn't the most attractive free agent destination of all of them if you stripped away the name brands and just went with the components that will be in place as, as we get to, towards July 1st. So very, very interesting the way the Clippers have positioned themselves for free agency and beyond. I don't know what happens going forward, Sean, but I, I was mentioning to John earlier, who uh, and Schumann had to hustle out of here. He's got to get to Brooklyn for the game. But I was mentioning to him this feeling I had in Houston last night where there's this inevitability of what's coming. And I kind of wrote about that today on NBA.com. The Warriors and Rockets, and, th- and I'll, this is the last thing we can dive into, Sean, before I let you get out of here. The Warriors clearly have business to, to tend to, obviously, with the Clippers. That you don't want to look too far ahead. But you mentioned that you felt like the, the Warriors could be vulnerable if they don't clean up some of their mess right now on and off the court, the, you know, the way they're operating and the way they're playing. Is this – as vulnerable as they've been since 2016, the Warriors in terms of the rest of the field having a shot to take them down? You know, I don't want to put too much stock into these two games and either dismiss or minimize what the Warriors are bringing to the table. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, um, putting aside these two games, uh, I, I, would, I would say the Warriors are – at the very least, just as strong as they were before. Now, you could nitpick, you could say that Draymond Green isn't the factor that he was in previous championship runs. Uh, mm-hmm. You could nitpick and say, you know, DeMarcus Cousins, not having him uh, might be an issue, even though they won championships without him. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't think they're any weaker. I think the, the bigger question is, Seku, is – is the competition any stronger? Are the Rockets uh, better this year? They have a better chance this year 
than they had last year. You know, you could argue that no, because they don't have Trevor Ariza. Uh, yeah, but after seeing them, I, w- I would say they do. I think they're better, Sean, after watching them last well, night in person. And, and, the, and, and the other thing is, is Chris better uh, this yeah. year than he was last year before he got hurt? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think Chris Paul's as good of a player. Now, he could turn it on, but, you know, I'm not so sure. Uh, and then, you know, if, it, if, they, if the Warriors do get past the uh, Rockets and let's just keep leapfrogging now that we're playing this game and they <laughs> see Denver, uh, you know, Denver hasn't shown me anything. Denver, matter of fact, they may not even see Denver, you right. know? Right. So I think it's up, really up to the competition now to try to, to basically poke at the Warriors and see if they still had the same medal as they had. Uh, you know, for the last five years. Yeah, it's going to be so, I mean, so fascinating, so interesting, This these next round of games. Game threes and game fours will be in the books um, the next time we show up here on the Hangtime Podcast. Sean Powell, West Coast Bureau Chief, appreciate you. Hopefully I'll see you uh, in the next round. Maybe we'll do this in person and, and have a, a different conversation to talk about with that conference semifinals coming up. That sounds good, my man. We'll see you then. All right, Sean. Thank you, man. All right. We'll be back on Monday uh, with another episode. John Schumann will have returned by then. As I mentioned, he had to cut out a little bit early. Got to get you to renew. We're all hustling around at NBA.com right now, making sure we are covering these games, making sure you get the information on the website as well as here on the Hangtime Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Hangtime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review, and we're here twice a week, just like throughout the course of the regular season. For Sean Powell on the West Coast, John Schumann, On the East Coast, I'm Seku Smith in San Antonio. We will see you right here next time on the Hangtime Podcast.